This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. We have talked about Fat Man 89. We have talked about The Dark Knight. We have talked about some of the other stories, but my question is, where is the Batman? (laughs) I can't wait to see that movie in theaters. It's coming out very soon. Yeah, well, teaser now. We will be coming to you next week. Barring the end of civilization by Bane and his army legion, we will be here telling you about the Batman. I can't wait. It's going to be amazing. Okay. Uh, D, you look fine. I didn't ask. <laughs> that was pretty good. I, was was, I, I teed that up for you. I was like, <laughs> got it. Okay. Good job. <laughs> we are not home washing our tights. We are talking about Batman 89 and the Dark Knight. We're going to finish up today with part three yep. and then have our supplemental some point after this. Yeah. Let's jump in now. I want to kick off a little bit, if you don't mind, with a lot of interesting things happening behind the scenes here. Okay. I'm I'm at your feet, ready to listen. Okay. One of the cool things about Batman 89, let's just start with Batman 89. Okay. okay? When the trailer for Batman 89 hit theaters. I have given a name to my pain. What are you? I'm Batman. It's one of the few trailers where people would pay good money to sit in a crappy movie. They didn't have reclining seats back then. And they would sit and watch the trailer for Batman, get totally jazzed, and they'd be like, that's it. I'm out of here. I don't have time for crap after this. There's something about seeing that in the theater, right? Yeah. And you get your best previews in the theater. You're exactly right. I'm a huge believer in experiencing on the big screen. Yeah. And there was something amazing about seeing that logo splashed across the screen. And Jack Nicholson's painted face at the very end coming out of the darkness and the Wait till they get a load of me. Oh, it's incredible. Oh my gosh. That very beginning shot of the introduction of Jack Nicholson's Joker, Mm -hmm. when he says, Jack is dead, my friend, Yeah, but you can call me Joker. It's chilling. Yeah. So I can remember seeing Batman 89 in the theater in California, in the same theater that what, uh, seven years earlier, Uh I had snuck into and watched National Lampoon Vacation, Risky Business, and Trading Places. Uh I had gone back to California years later, stayed with my aunt, stayed with my cousins. That summer, we went and watched UHF and Batman. We're going to talk about it, but the summer of 89 is one of the great movie summers of all time. You had Batman. You had Lethal Weapon 2, James Bond, and Indiana Jones. You had the return of the Ghostbusters. You had a roadhouse. You had Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Just week after week, great movie, fun movie after fun movie. So that was an amazing summer. So one of the interesting things about the bat suit that Michael Keaton had to wear. Yep. Nice outfit. He couldn't hear. I mean, he couldn't hear Jack. Okay. And when I say Jack, he couldn't couldn't hear hear Jack Jack Nicholson. (laughs) Right. (laughs) He also couldn't turn his head. Right. That's been a problem with the bat suit for a long time. The cowl just, you can't turn your head or you're twisting that cape all weird. That happened even with Adam West, even when it was just, (laughs) you know, like a cloth cowl. It's, It's always been a problem. I think until the Dark Knight Rises. I think with the Dark Knight Rises, they did some sort of disconnect with the mask and the neck piece so that he could finally move his head around. They actually talk about it. And uh, Christian Bale's character, Bruce Wayne says, hey, can you make the the neck move? And he's Hmm. like, you want to be able to turn your neck? And he's like, well, it'd sure be a lot easier back in the car out of the driveway. Right. Yeah, that's right. They address that in the movie. Yeah. Again, Christopher Nolan plausibility. Okay. Love it. So Michael Keaton couldn't hear, couldn't turn his head. And so if you watch the movie, he's real stiff. Every time he looks up at the helicopter, he does what they call the hero's lean. <laughs> right? right. He turns he with his turn shoulders. His whole back and yeah. his crane up. Michael Keaton also came up with the low gravelly voice that yeah. Batman speaks in. And Christian Bale obviously intensified that, he did. right? I mean, the, 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 if anything to poke fun of on the Dark Knight and the Batman trilogy, there is... I'm not wearing hockey pants. Yeah. Right? <laughs> it is It is a bit extreme, but hey, it goes back to the you don't want to be identified as you know an eccentric 
Playboy billionaire when you're the Batman. So not only do you cover your face, you also disguise your voice. Right. Another tidbit. When Tim Burton saw the Batmobile for the first time, yeah. he was blown away. He thought, man, this is really cool. Mm-hmm. But he's like, that's awesome. Where's the door? And they're like, son of a... They forgot to include the doors in the Batmobile. So that's why the that's why the top comes up and off. That's right. That's why they had to address that. So it's, it had to slide up. And I off. thought it. I all this time I thought it was like an airplane deal. Like that's because that's how you get into a, a fighter jet. No, they realized they, they did not put freaking doors. The doors. <laughs> Wow. All right. Do you remember the contest where you could win the Batmobile? Yeah, I want to talk about that. Okay. All right. So in 1989, this kid named Patrick McGlynn, who is a college student. Steal the Batmobile. Watch MTV all day this Sunday for the MTV Bat Signal. Then call the special 900 number on your screen. One of you is going to walk away a winner. He won the actual Batmobile. I remember Robert Wool actually came on and he was the one who pitched it. They took out the engine. I remember he's talking about that. But the jet engine in the back or yeah, yeah, exactly. When he won it, he actually signed a contract that prevented him from profiting off its exhibition. So he went to one museum and they, somebody stole the shift lever. The car was also taxable. So he had all this whoa, IRS whoa, 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 trouble. Whoa, whoa. You're telling me that the Batmobile was a manual transmission. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Can you imagine grinding the gears? <laughs> Pops a clutch. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, after all of this, he couldn't really make any money off of it. And he had to insure it. And so it had all this IRS problems and insurance problems. And so he had to sell it at a, basically a loss. So it's nothing but a pain in the butt. Oh my gosh. One of the scenes that was cut that I wanted to talk about Mm -hmm. at the very end of the movie, during the parade, the Joker is like, hubba hubba, who do you trust? Right? Right. I'm giving away free money. Well, the money that he is giving away, he mentions earlier in the movie, Vicky Vale says, what is it that you want? Uh He's like, my face on the $1 bill. Right. The money that he is giving away at the parade was counterfeit and it had Joker's face on it. Nice. Nice. It's all a big trick. <laughs> we mentioned that Peter Goober and John Peters and Tim Burton went to see the Phantom of the Opera. Right. Right That's before they were getting ready to shoot the Bell Tower scene. The Bell Tower scene. Right. Right. There's this awesome scene in the movie where the crowd is chasing him and he holds up this hand like he's got a grenade or dynamite or something that he's about to throw at him. And the crowd like pulls back in total fear and he opens his hand and there's nothing in it. And it just, it's a, a laugh moment right before they murder him. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, so they went to see this play Yeah, and they realized this is our act three. This is what we're going to do. Right. And once again, we talked about how this movie developed for 10 years Yeah, and they still hadn't had act three nailed down. In fact, when they were filming it, Jack Nicholson is like, now where am I going? Like what, am, what what's going on here? What's my motivation? <laughs> Where am I going? $90 million, Jack. $90 million <laughs> exactly. is your motivation. And they were like, just go. We'll figure it out later. <laughs> it's, it's insane to me that this was not nailed down. And then also Kim Basinger, who is sleeping with John Peters. Right. And what I presume is Pillow Talk uh-huh. was like, you know, Vicky Vale really needs to be there too. Yeah. And so they're like, yeah, whatever you say, honey, you know, Vicky Vale needs to be there as well. Right. And it really doesn't make any sense. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Why is she limp dancing? Right. We are definitely going to talk about the problems we that will exist talk about that we can see okay. as, you know, full-minded adults now. <laughs> as a kid, I was just, I was in for the ride. It's like, the, it's like the end of Jaws. The tank blowing up is absurd, but if you've bought in for the first two acts, you don't care anymore. Just, you know, show me what happens. And a fight in a big old bell tower is, I mean, that's something I want to watch, right? I, I went for it. Right. I definitely went for it in 89. So let's real quick, while you're in the midst of this, let's talk about the difference in style that Batman 89 has from The Dark Knight. We've already talked about the fact that The Dark Knight is based in realism, right? And we have real cities, realistic landscapes, and Tim Burton's Batman is not that at all. It is definitely different than anything before it and anything non-Tim Burton after it. It is so unique, but I think it is a throwback to the German expressionist styles that were going on in the silent movies, you know, before M and all of that came out. Some of that Fritz Lang stuff that we talked about before, some of the other German filmmakers back then were doing kind of these big gothic kind of sets that were not realistic, but 
engaging you know it's an amazing look that this movie has even though it's not any city anybody's ever really been to right well and they did that on purpose they wanted it to feel noir yep but you have i mean you have cars and sort of modern vehicles you have a, the batwing right is that a normal vehicle i'm, I'm not absolutely <laughs> people fly it all the time okay but they wanted it especially to be, when they when the moon is full <laughs> we're gonna get to problems here in a second but uh, uh yeah so they wanted it to be out of time you know mm -hmm. and and that i think that's one of the reasons why it does stand up yeah is it's timeless it is timeless one of the tidbits i want to talk to you about now the is jack nicholson had specific requirements for his filming day okay, okay? yeah so number one you want to have approval on all the latex makeup joker stuff crap 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 Oh, now that's good work. He actually said that he is allergic to the stuff that they apply the latex to, so that'd do something creative with that. He also had a very strict scheduling policy that he got to watch all the Laker games. <laughs> <laughs> and we know what a big Laker fan he well, is. Yeah, and uh, I guess I mean he had to watch him on TV. He's usually courtside if he can be, but he must. I mean, he's in. They had to work around England. the Laker schedule. Yes, right. Okay. <laughs> I know we're going to talk about problems later. Mm -hmm. Kim Basinger screams twenty three times during Batman. <laughs> It is a bit much. It's it's a bit much. It's every time you turn around, she sees yeah. the Joker. She screams. Yeah, she got a good scream, but I get it. You know, we we've heard it. We heard it again and again. Say <laughs> <laughs> okay. I want to point out that our buddy William Hootkins played uh -huh. Lieutenant Eckhart. So this is an, an important note because this came up in our one of our very first episodes when we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Back to the Future. And we talked about the fact that the government man in Raiders of the Lost Ark had also been in Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, this guy has been in like two of the biggest blockbusters of all time. And at that moment, you said, well, three, if you include Batman. And I was like, oh my gosh, he is the detective. How about this guy's career? Huh? Yeah. He plays Porkins. Porkins in Star Wars. Unfortunate name <laughs> for him. Sure. He was a heavier guy. So he flew one of the X-Wings that was killed in the uh, Battle of the Death Star. Yeah. He trimmed up a little bit by the time Raiders came around. Yeah. And then he gained it all back by the time <laughs> Batman came around. <laughs> he was one of the uh, top men, government agent guys in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Top men. <laughs> He was also with Flash Gordon. He was Munson. That's right. He's he was, the, guy the, he was the assistant that got smashed. <laughs> yes, I forgot all about that. That is right. He's also in Superman 4. Oh, well, I'm which not surprised. We, I forgot about that. But We are going to be talking about that this summer. Yeah. Well, I think that's the fourth time we've plugged that in the series. <laughs> I know, right? But... I know. So our buddy, William Hookins, give yeah. it up. Yeah. From down in Texas, but moved over to England and uh, became an actor out there, interestingly. Wow. Good for him. Yeah. Okay, here's some uh, Hollywood dirt for you that I thought was really interesting. Okay, so there was this love triangle going on. Okay. On set, Batman. Okay. Okay. Yep. We talked about how Michael Keaton was dating Michelle Pfeiffer at the time. Right. But, you know, you can be with the one you love or you can love the one you're with. <laughs> right. So, Sing it, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. All right. <laughs> so Michael Keaton started to pursue Kim Basinger. Uh huh. And there was a bit of a power struggle over Kim Basinger's affections. Sure. She ended up landing in John Peter's bed. We talked about that. Right. Okay. That made Michael Keaton mad because, I mean, of course, he's Batman. Yeah. But John Peter's is the producer. Right. Okay. Right. Now then, it doesn't stop there, though. Okay. She ended up in a whirlwind, fanatical romance with the purple one himself, Prince. Stop the presses. <laughs> the song Bat Dance apparently gets her rolling. She moved to Minneapolis to be with him. Okay. Wait. What? Wait a minute. Yes. She's on the rise to stardom. She's just done the biggest blockbuster ever in history, and she moves away from Hollywood? She moves to Minneapolis 
to freaking Paisley Park. Paisley Park. She moves to Paisley Park. Her family gets so concerned that she's joined a cult. They show up. <laughs> the, cult. <laughs> the cult of purple. That's it. That's it. So Prince has whisked her away. They show up when they know he's not there to rescue her from the purple one himself. And did they rescue her? I guess so. Because huh. she married married Alec Baldwin one year later. Right. It's crazy to me. Who is also in the running to be Batman. I think you mentioned That's that. That's exactly right? right. One of the things I want to discuss one more time, and we talked about this, I think, in episode one, the amount of money that Jack Nicholson made. $90 million. $90 million. Yeah. So he got $6 million from the movie, and he got a cut of the profits, and he got a cut of the toy action. Which Merchandising, was, yeah. And it wasn't just for Batman. It was for Batman, Batman Returns. And Batman Forever. Do you remember the McDonald's Batman Returns? Glasses? Yes. Yes. I do. Did you have the whole set? <laughs> I think so. I don't have it anymore. Uh-huh. But the lid to those glasses uh-huh. was a bat disc, a glow-in-the-dark bat disc. The lid oh, to I the I remember cups. that. I remember that. I do. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. By the way, 30 years ago, this year, right? Yes. Yeah. 92. Yeah. Because I told you I watched The Birdman before... And it talks about the fact that the last movie he did, he didn't do Birdman 4. The last time he was the Birdman was in 1992, which is the last time he was the Batman too. I I did like how those lined up a little bit. Until this year. And if you haven't seen the preview for The Flash, you need to go watch it and you need to listen to who's talking. It's exciting. We're going to compare the Batman here in just a second. Yeah. Okay. A couple more tidbits for you before we move on. The original line where the guy's like, who are you? Yes. And he says... I'm Batman. Yes. The script line was apparently originally, I'm Batman, (laughs) MFR. Okay. I was like, who is he going to say he is? (laughs) Samuel L. Jackson, apparently. (laughs) And last note here, Christopher Nolan was a fan of Batman 89. That's because he was born in 1970, man. He he grew up with it just like we did. Good for him. This is, and that's the great thing about him. He is a guy who loves artistic, beautiful films, but he also is a guy who loves action-packed thrillers. He grew up with Back to the Future. He grew up with Raiders of the Lost Ark. He grew up with Batman, which is how he takes an action movie and turns it into a film. That's we need to talk about that. Let's let's go and dive into that right now. Okay, so whenever they came to him, they start talking to him. Michael Uslan, who we've talked about, is the guy, right? He's that guy who taught the college course. He's the guy who started Bat Films, Inc. He's the guy who's been a producer on every single one of these. Right. He says at that moment, he realized that Batman could be more than a movie. It could be a film. And it was. Yeah. Batman Begins, a film. The Dark Knight a film. The Dark Knight Rises, still a film, just a film that also is filled with action and adventure. I like how, I mean, I've seen interviews with Christopher Nolan. He's talking about how important the Spielberg and Lucas, Zemeckis, Back to the Future, all of those movies, he talks about how they had such high quality and that's what he wanted to make. All right. I've got a few tidbits from The Dark Knight I want to bring up. Okay. Okay. Yep. Let's talk about Heath Ledger's voice for a second. Okay. We talked about how Heath Ledger is Australian. There is no hint of an accent. No. And he's got that low kind of, it's really odd voice. Yeah. It's disturbing, right? Right. You know what else he did? The prosthetic Glasgow smile. Yes. Would cause him to kind of lick his lips a little bit. Yeah. If it, it would break easily. And so he had to lick his lips to keep it from coming off, which then became a character trait of the Joker. It's really cool. Yeah. And it fits his whole. Absolutely. It's just really neat. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I'll throw something in here. Okay. Okay. The bat cycle. The bat pod. The one that ejects out of the. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that again was a product of Nathan Crowley, the guy who had thrown together the Humvee and the 70s Lamborghini. Uh huh. He did that, but he built six of them because they're going to crash. I don't know if we talked about this or not, but Aaron Eckhart based his performance on Bobby Kennedy. Harvey Dent is supposed to be more or less Bobby Kennedy. Okay. Very much in the law, very much the American hero. Refusing to be corrupted. Yep. That's exactly right. Yeah. I thought that was really cool. Yeah. The skyhook that they use to extract the guy in Hong Kong Uh and Batman is an actual thing. It was a military technology that they decided not to really use. (laughs) 
They do use it at the end of Thunderball in James Bond. Oh, nice. Uh, if you'll flash back to our James Bond, Thunderball, Never Say Never Again, Octopussy episode. As I understand it, the film scenes that they shot in Hong Kong were more difficult than they anticipated. Basically, they said it was an absolute nightmare to try to deal with the government there because they thought there would be too much noise. They put all kinds of restrictions on them. They even asked the residents one night, hey, will you just leave your lights on tonight? It'll create a better picture on the film. And they were like, now you're causing us to waste energy. (laughs) Okay. And so- So they had to CGI some stuff that they wouldn't have normally done, but like that dive that he does, the bat dive and and when he's in Hong Kong, that one had to be CGI because they just couldn't, they wouldn't let them have the helicopters over because it would create too much noise. People were uptight over there. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk to you about, have you ever been to Turkey, the country, Turkey? I have not. There's a city over there called Butman. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Not Butman, Butman. But it's it's spelled B-A-T-M-A-N. Yes. Yes. And they sued Warner Brothers yep. because they were like, that's the name of our city. Yeah. You can't use that. Copyright. Come on. Yeah. They, Budman. Yeah. They not only MFers. sued them, they like they blamed this increase in suicide rates and crime on the movie <laughs> and the fact that the movie used the name of the city. It's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Yes. Okay, here's something I want to point out. Heath Ledger and Joaquin Phoenix both won Oscars for performing the same character. Right. The Joker. Yes. Can you name the other time in history that happened? Two people won an Oscar for playing the same character. Mm -hmm. Gosh, I feel like I should know this, but I don't. Give it to me. It is Marlon Brando and Robert De Niro playing Vito Corleone. Oh, God, was it... That was a bit of a cheat. There's no reboot. There was no reboot there. That was okay. But that's, that's, that's good. I go. All right. Good. We are going to be covering the Godfather versus Godfather two versus Goodfellas. Right. Which I think is perfect. Once again, we have this divine thing watching out for us and how we do these episodes. The next three movies that we're going to cover are the Godfather, happy 50th anniversary, the Godfather two and Goodfellas. But as it turns out, Batman, when he began, was at the time of organized crime also rising to power. And so a lot of the guys that Batman fought were these mobsters. Gangsters, yeah. Mafia, right? right? That's who Batman was fighting in the early comic books. And looking at the Batman, I think they're going to throw back to that. Oswald Copperpot has a definite gangster feel about him. And it really looks like a story about the corruption of government, which you see all over the place in The Godfather. The corruption of government officials by organized crime. Okay. Batman versus Michael Corleone. Discuss amongst yourselves. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So a couple other tidbits. I don't want to forget. Yeah. There's actually very little blood in The Dark Knight. Right. You get one. I think uh, Commissioner Gordon gets shot in the back when he saves the mayor's life. I don't think you see any blood there, but yes. There's like, I think there's a squib. A squib? One, one squib. One squib. But so not predator. Not, <laughs> not predator. That's right. So yeah, very little blood, uh-huh. but it's still a very tense movie. Yeah. And, and violent at times. Right. We saw, you know, the pencil in the eyeball trick. Ta-da! No blood. No blood, but still very disturbing. It's intense. You can you can create the empathetic feeling of pain without having to use blood, for sure. When Christian Bale and Heath Ledger were together in that interrogation scene, yeah, Heath Ledger was like, "I really want you to hit me, uh-huh. right? I want you to hit me as, as hard, hard as, as you, you can." Ah, <laughs> oh, you hit me in the ear. <laughs> So I would seriously question the wisdom in asking Christian Bale to hit you as hard as he can, because number one, we know how much muscle he put on for this movie. Right. But number two, he also trained in the Kesey fighting method to perform all of the stunts. So he's he's not only big and strong, he's a BA fighter yeah. now because of his training. But it does look like it hurts when he slams his head into the table. <laughs> Makes him get all fuzzy. <laughs> Kill you. What would I do without you? You complete me. <laughs> so good, man. Uh, it's, it's spot on. And that's another thing. Another thing just about movies. A great movie has a villain that is one that with just a little bit of twisting, the hero could become the villain. Just like Raiders of the Lost Ark. With a little push, you two could step into the dark, right? Now you're getting nasty. But as it turns out, that becomes a trope that everybody uses. Sure. And so you... 
you're just a reflection of me is just a thing that you hear all the time. But to say, to take a line from Jerry Maguire of all places and say, you complete me as a way to say the same thing was a stroke of brilliance. Okay. I want to talk about the boats with the, you know, regular people going to work and the boat with the prisoners. And that's the final test of Gotham City, right? Both boats are rigged to explode and all they have to do is push the switch. Right. And ultimately the people of Gotham defeat the Joker themselves because nobody pushes the button. Now then Christopher Nolan has said that whoever pushed the button would have actually detonated their own boat. Of course. Because the Joker. It's the Joker. Right. That's what he does. Right. He's a two-faced. Oh, if you will. Oh, (laughs) but I thought that was interesting because I was one of those people that was like, I don't know. How do I feel about this? Would I push the button? Everybody did. Everybody in that scene asked themselves the question and answered it. What would I do in this situation? By the way, Michael Keaton, huge fan of the Dark Knight. Oh, yeah. Now, I heard Jack Nicholson talk about it, and he was not a huge fan. Oh, really? What did he say? Well, he said that he didn't think that they got it right. He was like, Tim Burton had the right idea. But he also sounded like a guy whose financial welfare was tied to the original movies. He's a little bit married to Tim Burton. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the scores, the soundtracks, the amazing bands and artists of the 80s who are involved in both of these movies. Okay. Let's do it. So first, obviously, we have Batman 89. We have a young film composer and we have Prince. Two different people. Yeah. Right? Yep. Now, that young film composer, his name has become prominent since then. Oh, yeah. And at the time, he was just coming into film production out of a band that you might have heard of called Oingo Boingo. Yeah. He had started off with his brother. They did weird avant-garde stuff. They The rule of that his brother made, and it was back when it was called the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, was we are not going to play anything contemporary. They did not play rock and roll. They did not play disco. They were playing like circus music and stuff from the 40s and 50s, right? It's weird. It's really weird. <laughs> I really enjoy it, but it is not something that you're going to rock your head to. It's just kind of fun, goofy music, which I say Danny Elfman, you think, okay, yeah, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, right? It's fun, kind of circus-like music. Yeah. So he has this band, and his brother decides to leave. He becomes the lead member of the band. He gets. He said they had so much stuff that it required a semi-truck just to move all of their stuff because it was this big, you know, theater like production so he whittled down their stuff and he whittled down the band and it just became oingo boingo and they started having music in quite a few different movies yeah okay so starting in 1980 his brother who had left the band did this really really weird and very inappropriate movie called forbidden zone (laughs) and so he had a hand in the music for that but then oingo boingo had songs in chips Chips. This TV series, yes. Uh, the Last American Virgin, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, 16 Candles, Bachelor Party, Beverly Hills Cop, and the one that we all know. And you mentioned Back to School earlier, but before that, he had Weird Science. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? Title oh, track that's to that. right. That's right. He, John Hughes said, hey, I'm doing this movie. I'd love for you to do a song for it. What's it called? Weird Science. He wrote the lyrics on the way home, had the melody by the time he got home to, to make that song. That's fantastic. Yes. So Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, by the way, and Something Wild, which we've mentioned a few times, Summer yep. School, which you love. And then he gets asked to compose with Tim Burton in his movies. And so we get Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Fantastic movie. Fantastic score, but it's comedy, right? It's goofy. Beetlejuice. Very wacky. Fantastic score, but again, dark comedy, right? That's it. Right. Now we're going to give you a superhero movie based on a character who's been around at that point for 50 years. That's a big... That's a big ask. That's a big ask, right? Do you think he delivered? Absolutely, I think he delivered. What do you think of the soundtrack? Well, so... 
I know that when he sat down with John Peters, Danny Elfman really didn't know how to do this, where he present to the producer. And so they're sitting there and Danny Elfman's like, well, here's what I think about when they're having the shootout. You know, he's playing this. He's like, well, here's what I think about when the Joker walks out of the room. And Tim Burton's like, play the march. Play the march. <laughs> yeah, D- John Peters is not thinking he's going to make not it. Not impressed at all. No. So he plays the wonderful, full-on Batman theme. And John Peters is like... That's it. You nailed it. I'm fully on board. Once he heard the Batman march, yeah. he was like, let's do this. You're hired. Okay, so the his the, the Batman theme by Danny Elfman is really just five notes. It's five notes. Okay. It is B C sharp. D, G, F sharp. And you get that over and over from different instruments, in different speeds, in different styles, but you get that theme all over the place. And then a lot of times he goes and he goes and to to reach kind of a period point, he'll end it with this C sharp major chord. And it's it kind of puts an exclamation point at the end of that theme that you've had over and over again. But there is a definite Batman theme that, I mean, it's just those five notes, but it's something that he took and molded in so many different ways that it played perfectly, no matter whether the Batman was in a huge fight with the Joker or he's retrospective about his life as the Batman and his relationship with Vicki Vale. It was all those same five notes in different ways. You ready to talk about Prince? Oh, I got a live one here. (laughs) 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 Oh, I got a live one here. (laughs) Stop the presses. (laughs) This town needs an enema. Let's talk about Prince for a second. Okay. So Warner Brothers went to John Peters and said, listen, there's a lot of money in music right now. We need some contemporary music to go along with this soundtrack. And John Peters is like, okay. They talked about Michael Jackson. They talked about George Michael. They kicked it around. Well, who did they settle on? Prince. Sure. So Tim Burton's like, I don't really think we need Prince. (laughs) He's like, no, you don't understand. We're having Prince. This is not an ask. This is a tell. I'm telling you, Prince is going to be produce some songs for the movie. Yeah. So Tim Burton was not a fan, but Prince delivered mostly for the Joker. You have the Party Man song that he plays at the museum where Joker is, you know, messing up all the the art and painting stuff, which Jack Nicholson's a big art fan. He felt kind of uncomfortable with that scene. Right. Uh, And then Prince actually produced the song Trust that Joker plays during the parade. Right. Which we mentioned they had a song from Purple Rain in that spot. Yeah, it was Baby, I'm a Star. Exactly. And if you listen to those two songs next to each other, you go, oh, yeah, it's the same rhythm. It's the exact same rhythm. They sound very similar, even. Uh Uh-huh. That summer, we had the number one song, Bat Dance, which is maybe the most ludicrous number one song of all time. (laughs) But I was swept away in it. Of course. They don't play it in the movie at all. No, it's not in the movie. They actually take the movie and play it in the song. It's all these clips and sound bites and quotes from uh, Vicki Vale's scream even shows up in the song. And then you've got the video where he's dressed up as both the Joker and Batman as though he is Two-Face. Now that was a brilliant decision if there ever was one. <laughs> that probably is what sealed the deal with Kim Basinger. <laughs> that song is- you have it both re- ways. <laughs> <laughs> that song is so ridiculous, but I, I had the single. I had the single. You had the single? Yes. <laughs> awesome. I'm just going to throw this out there. Yeah. One more song on that soundtrack yeah. that I really like is called The Arms of Orion. Okay. It's a very soft song. Yep. But it's him and Sheena Easton. Uh-huh. Flashback to our Sign of the Times episode where they sang You Got the Look Together. Yep. But I think that that's the best song on the soundtrack. I've listened to that soundtrack. I really enjoyed it. It's a great, if you're a Prince fan, it is a great 
bunch of songs, but you're right. They only really use two ish, maybe three songs in the whole movie of off of that soundtrack. He just kind of made the, he took a couple of songs and made an album out of the rest of it. Right. But as it turned out, everybody who were very familiar with Prince knew he was doing the soundtrack and they thought he had composed all of the score as well. <laughs> and so then the, they start doing news stories where they're interviewing Danny Elfman and he's like, yeah, that's me. That's not <laughs> Prince. And they told me that Prince was going to be involved and do songs, which I don't have any problem with that. I'm excited. I love Prince's music. But uh, when he starts getting credit for my music, then I, that's where I kind of draw the line. I'm not really comfortable with that. One more thing about Prince's music. Yeah. There's a song on that soundtrack called Scandalous. They have an extended version of Scandalous where Kim Basinger and Prince can be heard trysting in the studio. Tristing? Tristing. So, <laughs> tristing, is that what Axl Rose <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what it is. a tryst. <laughs> yes. When Axl Rose <laughs> nailed that girl in the studio in Rocket Queen, you have the same oh thing. Oh my gosh. Yes. Okay. So where can you hear this scandalous version of Scandalous? Uh, the internet. Ah, okay. Right. <laughs> and Kim Basinger is singing on it. She's rapping? She's rapping. She's rapping. Kim she Basinger is rapping. Yeah, she's rapping. This is something I got to do. <laughs> All right. So shall we move on to The Dark Knight? Yes. Okay. So I said three artists and bands of the 80s. We've mentioned Prince. We've mentioned Oingo Boingo. And do you know who the third artist that we of the 80s that we should bring up is? The Buggles. The Buggles. Yes! Video killed the radio star. And why is that involved in what we're talking about? Because Hans Zimmer used to be a member of the Buggles. He played the keyboards for the Buggles, yes. I'm not sure if you can see him in the video or not, but yes, he was a member of the Buggles. So both the composer for Batman 89 and the composer for the Dark Knight trilogy came from bands of the 80s. That's unbelievable. So Hans Zimmer, I mean... He, he's one of the most prolific composers in existence. I mean, it's he's probably number two right under John Williams, right? I mean, you can, you can throw some other names around that are close, but I don't think that anybody has had his hands on as much stuff in the last 20 years as Hans Zimmer has. Starting with Gladiator. I mean, he did plenty before that, but, but there, I mean... The Gladiator movie. soundtrack is phenomenal. It is. It's fantastic. And I love Hans Zimmer's music, but it is not anything not anything like danny elfman's music right you you literally this is i know this is going to sound crazy there's basically a two-note theme for batman in the dark knight you hear it twice in the whole movie okay it, for the, i mean twice at the end of the movie like when they roll the credits you'll hear it again but as the action goes on in the movie you only hear the batman theme twice the rest of it is all orchestration with and i'm going to throw a you know the soundtrack an ostinato which is a repeating phrase and that's what hans zimmer is an expert at is this repeating repeating phrase the, the, and still just a couple of notes just a couple of notes but he, the other composer on this movie is a guy named james newton howard who is also hugely prolific Okay, so James Newton Howard also has a huge prolific history. He has done basically all of the M. Night Shyamalan movies, did The Sixth Sense, Signs, um, all of those. He did Unbreakable. He did Batman Begins. He did King Kong. He did Freedom Land. He was, he's a very prolific composer as well. And he and Hans Zimmer worked together on the score for the Dark Knight trilogy, right? And they had initially composed a very intricate and multi-note theme for Batman and for the Dark Knight, but they decided to scrap it. They decided to take it away and make it a two-note project. And wow. if you listen to what James Newton Howard does and what Hans Zimmer does, you can tell that Hans Zimmer is really kind of the driving force behind most of the music in this movie. But they divided up work as you do, right? And so a couple of other ways that you can tell the difference on the way that they write is you listen to the two different songs. Hans Zimmer said, hey, I'll handle the Joker's music. Why don't you handle Harvey Dent 
slash Two Faces music, right? Let's start with the Joker. His theme is the beginning theme, which is why so serious? Why so serious? So let's listen to that. This is the beginning of the movie. And you can hear that beginning sound where it's, I mean, it reminds me of Pink Floyd and the Hey You, kind of the worms in your brain. I think it's like a razor blade on some strings and a kind of rising. We talked about how Christopher Nolan likes to do that shepherd tone where it just continues to rise and rise and build that tension. And that's what he's doing with this. And then there's the Joker has this definite Hans Zimmer style on all of his music, right? Yeah. Okay. So now... In fact, I think even Christopher Nolan said the theme, the one word theme for The Dark Knight Rises is escalation. Yeah. Okay, so you can hear how James Howard Newton has a completely different style than Hans Zimmer has. James Howard Newton is more of that neoclassical stuff we loved from the 80s like John Williams is, whereas Hans Zimmer definitely has his own style. He does that ostinato repeating phrase that just builds and builds, whereas James Newton Howard's style is more pretty more like we expect in a standard score from the 20th century yeah yeah that's some of the best composers working in the business today absolutely all right let's talk batman 89 problems first okay Okay. yeah i've got a few that i want to discuss i'm glad to get these off my chest i've been dealing with these for 30 some odd years yeah okay so i love batman 89 i don't want to get into my judgment just yet but let's talk about these problems okay so Number one, Alfred betrays um, yeah. Bruce Wayne what? by letting his girlfriend in the Batcave. Yeah, I mean, his whole emotional struggle that we are hoping to have him solve is whether to tell her that he's Batman or not. <laughs> and Alfred comes along and completely lets the air out of his tanks. I mean, what? 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 Alfred likes her more than Bruce does. Oh, my God. Bruce is ready to just let her go and, and ghost her. Uh. But freaking Alfred lets her in. Okay. Major problem with that. Very big problem. Okay. I have another problem. The scene where the Joker attacks the mobster on the steps of the courthouse. Yeah. And he kills him with the the quill Quill. pen. Yeah, the quill pen. Yep. The pen is truly mightier mightier than the sword. Yes, the quill. Hey, Vinny. It's your Uncle Bingo. Once again, Jack Nicholson can take an absolutely ridiculous line and make it awesome. (laughs) His his makeup is weird, weird and yeah, okay. yeah crazy. At Another that point. slight problem, but yeah. But, but here's the thing: so Bruce Wayne is watching all these minds commit murder right on the steps of the courthouse. Right. Bruce Wayne gets shot in the shoulder. He what? He gets shot. He gets shot in that scene. Yes, he absolutely does. And in fact, you can see his jacket. There's like a bullet hole in the side of his arm. He's unfazed. Yes, he's unfazed. He's Axel Foley from Beverly Hills Cop. Exactly. Ow. Exactly. Oh, okay, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> Axel Foley takes a 38 to the shoulder and it's like, ouch. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Bruce Wayne doesn't even give that. Like, he, he acts like he doesn't even feel it. Huh. And then later, Alfred is going through his clothing and sticks his finger through the bullet hole in his coat. Hmm. And it's like, oh, interesting, weird. And that's it. Bruce Wayne is human being. Yeah. He's not a superhero. He's... That's what makes Batman so cool. Right. That's weird. Okay, yeah. Problem one. Problem okay. one. Right. Problem two. Problem two. The problem that the Joker also imposes on Batman and also Gotham City is that he's released this chemical that causes people to die laughing, have these weird stretchy smiles on their faces, whatever. Yeah. Batman just shows up and like, like literally two minutes later, he's like, here's the combination. Solved it. Like, like I get he's a detective, but let's see a little, let's show your work, please. Okay. <laughs> How did you solve this problem? I figured it's, it out. It's it's detergent and uh, deodorant. Oh yeah. It's a combination of all of these various things. And it only took me five minutes to figure out. I'm surprised <laughs> that all of the scientists couldn't figure it out already. He figures it out like five minutes. It's really? ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. Okay. It's like, it is like Lex Luthor figuring out where the kryptonite is in Superman. Like he pulls out an encyclopedia. <laughs> Here's a meteor. Let's go get it. Problem three, the Batwing in Act 3. I love the Batwing. The Batwing is awesome. Uh-huh. And it does do that majestic thing up against the moon, which is super cool. I think the audience cheered when that happened. <laughs> it's really cool. Yeah. But the Batwing comes down and is going to take out the Joker. Oh, yeah. Right? Is gonna. Is gonna. The sights are locked in. And if there's anything we learned from the movie Top Gun, it's when you've got a gridlock, that person is dead meat on the gridlock. I got a joke for you. Ready? Yeah. Okay, 
Why couldn't Batman kill the Joker with the Batwing? Why? Because he didn't use the Force. (laughs) (laughs) He should have turned off his targeting computer. He should have. Are you okay? He had him in the sights, and he fires missiles and machine guns. And Jack Joker just stands there facing him, balls out. I'm not scared, and he has no reason to be because he can't hit the broadside of a barn. Totally misses everything. And then Jack pulls out this ridiculous circus gun. (laughs) I really expected it to shoot out the bang that comes a little bit later in the movie, but (laughs) it's absurd. It's 10 feet long, one shot, and he takes down the Batwing. Okay, wait a minute. Now, is it more absurd that he took down the Batwing with one shot or the fact that he can dance to Prince songs with a four-foot gun in his (laughs) pants? Is that a gun in your pants? I'm just happy to see it. So one shot takes down the Batwing. Uh-huh. Come on. That's stupid. We saw the Batmobile take multiple bullets and yeah. no problems at all. Exactly. So then the Batwing crashes. At into, the, crashes into the church. Right, which it's the biggest church I've ever seen in my life. Well, yeah, and so crashes into the church, and so what's the Joker's solution? Let's go to the top of the church. Because why not? Because why? What? What? Well, that's where the helicopter guys are. That's where the ninjas are hiding. What? That doesn't even... Uh, He's it's... got men at the top of the cathedral <laughs> for some reason. And then Vicki Vale. Can we talk about Vicki Vale and what's going on here? Sure, sure. Um, she is kidnapped. She is taken against her will. And yet somehow she is leading the way. <laughs> Unsurely leading the way. She's she's the one that's in front and looking behind in a what's going on manner, but still... Moving up the stairs to the top of the bell tower. Bruce Wayne, Batman, who survives a a gunshot without even being phased, is a stupering drunk mess after the Batwing crash. He nudges a pew and they all come a tum-tum tumbling down like a bunch (laughs) of dominoes. My kids are like, wait a minute, is this Batman? What's going on? What is he doing? It's ridiculous. Yeah, so he clues in the Joker that he has lived and that he is on his way up to catch him so that the Joker can walkie-talkie the ninja and the (laughs) gigantic bodyguard to to do his fighting for him. That's right. So once they get to the top of the cathedral, Vicki Vale is going to Raggedy Ann dance with him for some unknown reason. Limp noodle. What? What's going on here? It is just plain absurd. Well, you know, she does the exact same thing in Tom Petty's (laughs) Mary Jane's last dance. Right. So apparently Tom Petty liked it. So, and then the distraction tactics. Oh yeah. So she sees the, she sees Batman and she thinks, oh, okay, I know what to do at this point. I've been in this situation before. (laughs) If there's one thing I know that men get distracted by, she's going to, she's going to go say hi to Mr. Little Joker. Doesn't matter whether they're actors or producers. (laughs) And Jack Nicholson's face is priceless in that moment. Yeah, uh, surprise and pleasure. <laughs> Hello. Okay, this I wasn't expecting this at this moment. But I'm going to go ahead and go with it. <laughs> the helicopter guys can wait a few minutes. <laughs> Excuse me. Have you ever danced with the devil in the pale moonlight? <laughs> okay, so yes, all of that, that whole act three is a bit absurd. And we, we still have the problem of Batman killing people. He's, he kills the ninja, he kills the big bodyguard, and he just flat out says to the Joker, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. You idiot! You made me, remember? Yeah. That seems cool. It's, and- the writing is a bit forced, but again, 1989, I was all in. It's like Jaws, right. you know, if you bought in for the first two acts in Act 3, it doesn't matter how ridiculous it gets, I'm all in. My kids weren't. My kids were a little wiser. They're 21st century kids who are like, I'm not buying this, okay? What's going on here? Well, when he hits the pavement, he cracks the asphalt. That would not happen. Let's talk about, I mean, number one, Batman kills him, right? I mean, no, he didn't shoot him in the head, but he's the one that shot the grappling hook around his ankle and shot the other one around the gargoyle that apparently the super glue didn't take on. And the gargoyle immediately comes off. This thing that's so incredibly heavy just kind of easily pops off because it's hooked onto the Joker's ankle, and then he shoots down. It's a, that scene is a bit terrifying to see him shoot down. But then as he's down there, and the laugh box is going off, and all of the concrete is cracked, my 10-year-old daughter goes says to me, 
would he really have cracked the concrete like that? And I'm like, no, <laughs> it would not. Well, why did they do that? Well, because they probably would have had cra- rather had cracked concrete than cracked Joker. That's he right. would have been Joker goo all over the street in reality. But this isn't reality, honey. This is this is a comic book movie, but it is an awesome comic book movie. All right, let's talk about the problems with the Dark Knight. What? The problems. There are no problems with the Dark Knight. Hear me out on this, okay? Okay. We already discussed, both you and I agree that this is one of the best movies of the 21st century. Yeah, one of the best movies of all time. And it, it may be a near-perfect movie. It is, uh, yeah. It is in top, I would put it in the top 10 movies of all time, honestly. I don't want to bag on this movie because I appreciate the character development. I appreciate going for story rather than selling toys. I don't want to take anything away from the Dark Knight. Yeah. There are a couple of problems. Okay. Here's my biggest problem. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. When Harvey Dent gets his face melted off. Yeah. And he turns to talk to Gordon and Gordon sees the half of his face. Yep. That CGI does not look good. <sighs> okay. So, so we know that Christopher Nolan wanted to go reality, reality, as much as reality could bear a comic book movie. That's the way he wanted to go. And they had several masks. I mean, problem number one is with a burned face, the idea is you have to remove face. And that's real hard to do on a real human being. So they did masks to try to do it. You can't build up, but they tried to anyway. And they made them very realistic. And the problem was, is it was so realistic, it it took you out like you were unsettled. I mean, it's like gory, nasty stuff. And so you were taken out. And so this is the one time that he was like, maybe we should make this less realistic so that people can still live through the movie. Okay. I just didn't think, you know, throughout the entire movie, they do all these practical effects and everything looks fantastic. Mm -hmm. And then they have one shot. It's like Princess Leia's face at the end of Rogue One, where you're like, (laughs) eh. Yeah. That's not great. Not quite there. All right. And my other problem, I told you that I think that it would have been really cool if they'd have figured out a way for Two-Face to arise at the end of that movie, rip his bandages off, and ah, I'm Two-Face, and he's the bad guy for part three. Right. And now it would have screwed the whole plot of the movie up, and I get that. I just think that would have been a really cool moment, much like at the end of Batman Begins where we had that little teaser about the Joker. Sure. Yeah, it could have been it could have been a cool ending. And honestly, the first two acts and the length of the movie, it was strong enough to end it with him just being the two-face. But like with the first movie, they didn't know whether there was going to be a second movie. Even with the third movie, they didn't know whether there was going to be a fourth movie. What they would do is try to write the movie as a standalone movie. And so if you limit yourself to, well, we can't go into two-face and what he does because we're saving that for the next movie, then you've unnecessarily limited yourself and so that's why he's the driving force behind act three which if there's a problem with the movie it's that act three doesn't finish as strong as act one and two build it up to be yeah that's that's the only but it's still a good i mean if you took if you took it as a standalone and didn't even include act one and act two it's great i mean the whole flipping of the coin and two-face and the conversion of the white knight into the Dark Knight, because that's really what the the title is about. It's not just a reference to Batman. It's a reference to the takedown of the near-perfect character of Harvey Dent. Um, so that standing alone is great, but it's preceded by so much incredible Joker and Batman action that it's it's hard to live up. Yeah. It was. Okay, we're done with problems. Yeah. Can't think of anything else? No. Nothing other than the fact that the Joker in 1989 had time to get all of his cars painted purple (laughs) and get all the jackets, you know, with the Joker label on it and stuff like that. Right, right. Okay, guys, we're going to take a quick break and do our Shirley Showcase. We have a special guest going to tell us their opinion on who the best Batman is. Yeah, this is our good friend Tristan Martin. Tristan's been with us since day one. He's one of my best friends in the entire world, somebody I can bounce ideas off of. We appreciate him. Here's what Tristan had to say about who the best Batman was. Hey, this is Shirley fan Tristan Martin. I've been listening since day one, and you've even re-listened. Love what you guys do. And uh, Jason, you have asked me to talk about Batman. So in my first 30 minutes, I'll say, just kidding. 
No, I I will try to limit it to my favorite Batman. And uh, I'm going to skip Adam West. I'm going to skip George Clooney. thought Affleck was okay. What's hard for me is saying who is number one. I would put Christian Bale at number three. I think he did a great job in those movies. And I, I would say that The Dark Knight is definitely my favorite Batman movie because it is the best Batman movie. It's hard, but Keaton is going to be my second choice. That nostalgia factor is there. Also, I just think Keaton can really play anything. I mean, he's great as as a villain. He's great as a good guy, Spider-Man, Birdman, whatever it is. Keaton is awesome. And again, he was my Batman growing up. I did have the Batman Command Center. I had the Michael Keaton toy, all of that stuff. And I still love Keaton. I loved the uh, 89 Batman comic book series that they're, they're putting out right now. But as far as the best Batman, to me, the long Longest running quality performance. It's got to be Kevin Conroy. And Kevin Conroy was the Batman the Animated Series star. His Bruce was great. And his Batman was great too. And the reason that I put him above Bale is because Bale added in, and I don't know if this was Nolan's idea or, or what, making Batman have the scary voice, I'm Batman, raw, which I get because you want to distinguish Batman from Bruce Wayne. But I feel like, uh, like Kevin Conroy's Bruce Wayne and Batman were still a bit different and Batman still seemed like a detective. He wasn't just a, a brawny guy, almost like the crime fighting comes second to him figuring things out. And that's why he can play with the Riddler and uh, all these other super intelligent people because he's a detective. And I feel like Kevin Conroy really filled that role well. I think I've gone over time, so I apologize, guys. You do a great job. Love it. Love Batman. So uh, keep on keeping on. Okay, so that's a good one. Like, we didn't approach the animated series. We didn't talk cartoons. There have obviously been a ton of actors who have contributed their voice to Batman. But uh, that's, I mean, a valid conclusion. Valid conclusion. Man, I mean, coming strong with the Kevin Conroy. That's really cool. And it is detective comics, after all. Appreciate the, the detective opinion. Tristan's a big comic book fan, and, and so he knows these stories well. Tristan, thanks so much, buddy. Appreciate you. He has been just a valuable person to bounce ideas off of and get feedback from. Tristan, thanks, buddy. Thanks, Tristan. Okay, let's go to comparisons. Are we ready to dive in? Yeah, let's go. Let's 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 do judgment. You know what? To change things up, let's do judgment this time. Let's judge Batman to Batman, Joker to Joker, uh, Batmobile to Batmobile. Let's let's do that and then finish off with movie to movie. All right, let's do it. All okay, right, okay, go. Batmobile. To Batmobile, 1989's top sliding off to the Tumblr. What do you think? I, on this particular scenario, have to go with nostalgia. I can remember in the theater seeing the Batmobile come out in 89. And, you know, the only Batmobile experience I had up to that point was watching the old reruns of the Adam West stuff, where they're in basically the 1960s convertible car. Right. And to see that thing, that big, long, glorious, bat-looking, bulletproof, amazing, armed car come out, I was like, I want that. I want that car. Why don't they make cars like that? I think it was fantastic. The Tumblr is cool. There's no question the Tumblr is cool and more realistic, but for me, I got to say Batmobile 89. Okay. In this case, you're way off base because the Tumblr <laughs> is way cooler. You have the tires and the just the attack vehicle look of it. I also love the fact that the motorcycle can break out of the Tumblr. Cool. It's so awesome. In this case, I'm going all the way in Tumblr over the old one. Okay, and just to throw back to problems with the movie, the one problem I did have with The Dark Knight is the tumbler going from rooftop to rooftop. When it hits the church, I'm like, no way. <laughs> that one sink into the bottom of the church like a stone. There's no way it's going to hold up on those shingles. But anyway, yeah, okay, so you're picking tumbler. I got tumbler. All right, so Batman to Batman Let's next. Let's go Batman to Batman. Okay. You Michael Keaton versus Christian Bale. Yeah, what's your call? It's Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton. Doesn't necessarily look the part, but he's got so much charisma. He's such a likable guy as Batman. He can play the dark. He's just a lot more fun. I'm going Michael Keaton all the way. Again, I've gotta I gotta go with you on this one. I'm this is nostalgia again. It's I like in Superman. I picked Man of Steel over Superman 1 and 2. Love them all, but Christopher Reeves is always going to be Superman to me. 
And in the same vein, Michael Keaton is always going to be Bruce Wayne to me. Christian Bale looks more like a superhero. He's tall. He's fit. He's muscular. I mean, he's he a good jawline. I mean, he's got it all. But nostalgia, again, wins out in this scenario. Michael Keaton gave us a portrayal that was memorable. He, he could go a little bit crazy and we could see it. His... Bruce Wayne was troubled and brooding and basically kind of the same as Batman, whereas Christian Bale played the, you know, where he was playing a part as Bruce Wayne. The real guy was Batman and the character, the the actor was Bruce Wayne uh, with this playboy nonsense that he was doing. And as hard as that was to pull off in a believable way, I can't leave Michael Keaton behind. He's just too good. By the way, just a side note, the scene where Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson meet and there's another rooster in the hen house at Vicky Vale's <laughs> apartment and Michael Keaton slides in the uh, the little aluminum tray that's going to stop a, a, a low-caliber Joker gun. It's a good thing he didn't have the circus gun. I always think about Dumb and Dumber where I'm like, what if he shot you in the face? Yeah, what if he shot me in the yeah, face? Yeah, what if he shot me in the face? That's a risk we were willing to take. <laughs> All right, Joker to Joker, D, you're up. Okay, there is no question that Jack Nicholson's Joker was an icon, is still an icon. It was the reason that nobody wanted to be the Joker when the Dark Knight was being cast. Every line that he says is memorable. Yes. Jack Nicholson, in any movie that he's in, is going to be Jack, but it's like he was Jack plus on all of these Joker lines. But when Heath Ledger takes on that challenge and reinvents the Joker and doesn't do anything like Jack Nicholson did, but gives us a guy who you're like, whoa, this guy has got a bag of cats in his head until three quarters into the movie. And then all of a sudden he almost makes sense. That takes some extreme skill. And to do it in a character that's so memorable, I got to go Heath Ledger. God rest his soul. All right. I agree with you. Heath Ledger presents some real menace, particularly for me in those videos of him with those victims that he we actually talked about. He directed those scenes himself. Yeah. Where he's he's going to kill those people. The guy in the hockey pants, you know. And he has such a great presence and you believe that he wants the world to burn and he's all in crazy, but crazy like a fox, right? Mm-hmm. And then you've got Jack Nicholson, who may be his most iconic movie role ever. And maybe the most iconic role of the 80s, where he's playing the Joker and he laughs, that crazy laugh throughout the entire movie. And it's so much fun. And every line is memorable, right? I mean, never rub another man's rhubarb, right? I could, I could spiel him out. He stole my balloons! <laughs> Why didn't somebody tell me he had one of those things? <laughs> <laughs> so this town needs an <laughs> can someone tell me what kind of a world we live in yeah so every line is memorable spike in the football put me down jack nicholson oh my God. as the original iconic joker okay well all right i understand okay let's go movie to movie okay you want me to go first you, you go know first? what my vote is on this you go ahead <laughs> all right so in this case I love Batman 89. It hit me at the exact right moment. I talked a lot about how the summer of 1989 is one of my favorite summers of all time. I was 16. I was going to see every movie in the theater. My friends and I saw this multiple times. I love Batman 89. I love Michael Keaton. I've talked about how Jack Nicholson's Joker is more iconic to me. But Dark Knight is a way better movie. It's not even close. Batman is great for what it is, but the Dark Knight is far and away a better movie. Spike the football. What do you got? I don't need to go into a lot of detail. There's no mystery. I haven't tried to fool you during this episode, these last three episodes at all. There's no question that The Dark Knight is a better film. Like, if I want to have fun and eat popcorn with my family, we're going to put in Batman 89, and we're just going to have a silly time, and that's great. And it's a great movie. It's exciting. It's fun. But Christopher Nolan took a comic book and made it a film by itself, even without the character history of 80 years of the Batman, if you just switched Batman out for some other made-up new superhero and the Joker was some other made-up psychopath, this still would be a fantastic film, and therefore it beats it beats Batman 89, no question about it. We love both of these. Love them. But we're both all in on The Dark Knight. Yep. We want to hear from you guys. Where are you? Where are we? 
What do you think? Weigh in. Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter. What do you think? We've got a lot of top fans out there on Facebook who, once they hear the episode, they're immediately telling us how we got it wrong, and we love it. That's we right. We love it. And if you've been with us thus far, hit that follow button on your podcast app, whatever it might be. It doesn't cost you a dime. All it does is help us with our ratings, help us put towards the top where people will see us. So do us this small favor of hitting that follow button so that we can talk to you again in a week and then next week after that. And what do we got coming up? What's in store? We are celebrating the Godfather's 50th anniversary next week by matching it up with The Godfather Part 2 and Goodfellas. Godfather Part 1 has been described as one of the best movies ever made. Yes. Godfather 2 has been described as maybe the best sequel ever made. Yes. And Goodfellas. Martin Scorsese's, arguably his Godfather. That's going to be a tough one. That is going to be a tough one. But we might have a special sneak episode in between now and then because hopefully things go according to plan. Jason and I will have caught the new movie, The Batman. And we will be able to come back and tell you our thoughts on that. Join us back here next week. If you know a Batman fan, have them subscribe. Have them listen. Rub our rhubarb for us on this deal. (laughs) We'll see you next week for The Godfather. Stop.